Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. For the last 12 years, Tequila Chunyalpa has worked with religious and indigenous leaders, scientists, and policymakers to design community-based environmental and climate programs. But having grown up in the northeastern Indian state of Sikkim, surrounded by strong women who chose to walk the monastic path, Chunyalpa hasn't always found it easy to show up as both a devout Tibetan Buddhist and a conservation scientist. In this episode of Tricycle Talks, Chunyalpa shares how she's come to integrate her commitments to science and faith, deal with climate deniers, and head the LOCA Initiative, a climate change outreach program that empowers and uplifts religious communities. In the face of so much eco-anxiety, climate distress, and doom and gloom, it's ultimately Buddhist teachings on emptiness, impermanence, non-attachment, and compassion, she says, that sustain her. Dakila Chunyapa, welcome to Tricycle Talks. Thank you for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to be interviewed and to meet you again and to speak with Tricycle. So how are you feeling, Dakila? I am good. We have two feet of snow here in Madison, and it's sunny, though, so it kind of balances out. Well, it's still snowing here after a nor'easter yesterday, and I think we might have about a foot and a half, I'm not sure, Central Park anyway. But we really got hit hard, too. It's kind of nice, actually. You know what? Just this weekend, for the first time, I went snowshoeing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've done it, but I loved it. This is exactly the kind of winter activity I can do where all I have to do is just walk, right? <laughs> I loved it. I have to say my dog loves running around in it far more than I do. <laughs> Does your dog like it? Yes. My dog loves snow. I have to force her to come inside. I learned what gambling is by watching her because she acts like a deer. (laughs) She just springs and gambles all over the snow. Well, I have to say snow can be a bit of a comfort in a time of global warming, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Not that it means a whole lot, but it's still nice that we have some (laughs) snow, right? Right. Now you're at the LOCA Initiative, a climate change outreach program for faith leaders. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization and how it came about? Sure. I am based at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the host for me is the Center for Healthy Minds, which was founded by Dr. Richie Davidson, who some people might know. He is one of the leading neuroscientists that looks at the impact of mindfulness on brain activity and uh, neuroplasticity. I need to take a step back to explain how I ended up here because I come from the nonprofit conservation world. Um, And so when I was working with the World Wildlife Fund and started working with faith leaders, I was very privileged to receive an award from Yale. And so that allowed me to go to Yale and basically design the prototype for the LOCA initiative there. It's been 12 years now that I've been working with faith leaders, starting, of course, with my own lineage, the Karmakagyu lineage in the Himalayas and in the Tibetan Plateau, but also, you know, with the Catholic Church and with the Muslim councils and evangelical preachers and all around the world. And what I was hearing again and again was their request for basically a safe space where they could meet with scientists and they could meet with policymakers and experts on the ground to design projects that worked for them on environmental and climate issues that basically didn't try to convince them that what their most sacred writings are, what their most sacred knowledge is, is wrong. So basically, in the 12 years I've worked with these faith leaders all around the world, what I kept hearing from them was this request or this desire for a safe space, 
a meeting ground where they could meet with scientists, you know, they could meet with resource experts, policymakers to design environmental and climate projects that were led by themselves. And that that is really key. This idea that we could design projects which begins with the premise that their faith sacred knowledge within their institutions are accurate. And then you build ground up environmental and climate projects that they lead. And so I was so lucky to have access to so many religious leaders, so many indigenous leaders that I could basically spend time with. And that's how the seed of the LOCA initiative was created. And second, you have this incredibly diverse groups of knowledge, unlike, I think, often in the practical movements themselves. I'm wondering, when you say that their sacred knowledge is accurate, especially since we're talking about science as well, what would you mean by accurate in that particular context? I think the key to working with faith leaders and religious institutions is to understand that they don't need to adopt our vocabulary. And it actually makes our work so much easier if we adopt theirs. So, you know, a perfect example for me would be from my own tradition, which is Tibetan Buddhism. I was raised in a very, you know, religious family. My mother was a nun, my grandmother was a nun. And because I was raised within the value system of Tibetan Buddhism, I saw everything, right? My entire worldview was in many ways influenced by, for example, the emphasis on interdependence or the emphasis on emptiness or even compassion. And so the way I talk about, let's say, biodiversity conservation and let's say ecosystem services is a perfect example. It's really important when I talk to Tibetan Buddhists in my community that I start with explaining how that is really the manifestation of interdependence. And so similarly, when I talk to Christians and evangelical preachers, for example, it's really important when I talk about biodiversity that I talk about it in terms that make sense to them. That's part of their worldview. In their case, it would be creation and the fact that, you know, God created everything and all of creation matters. And so when we talk about biodiversity, it comes from that lens. Another example would be if I'm speaking and working with indigenous leaders that I really ground the conversation in the language of kinship. And so one of the things that I think is really key about doing faith-based conservation, climate, any kind of world is to respect and understand that these differences don't mean we have to be adversarial. You can be a scientist and a faith leader. You can be a scientist and believe in a faith. And these two truths don't have to be contradictions. They can be held in the same palm. Right. So just out of curiosity, how has the pandemic affected your work? The first part was a little hard because I had to pivot very quickly to doing pandemic preparedness for the Tibetan Buddhist monasteries and nunneries that I work with, which is called Koryuk. And so we have over 55 monasteries and nunneries that do environmental and climate work. And what was fascinating to me was we were doing these trainings over WhatsApp at 3 a.m., you know. What was fascinating to me is the monasteries and nunneries that have experienced and received previous training in climate disaster preparedness were really light years ahead than the monasteries and nunneries that hadn't. Could you tell us what Koryuk is? Koryuk, which means environment for Tibetan, is an eco-monastic association in the Himalayas, uh, a little bit in Tibet as well. Uh, We have 55 plus monasteries and nunneries that are doing environmental projects 
including climate projects under the auspices of His Holiness the Karmapa. It's Rime, which means it's non-sectarian. So we have, you know, Kagyu, Nyingma, Geluk, all of the uh, Sakya, all monasteries and nunneries are welcome. And they do everything you can think of. They select the issues they care about the most. And then my job as their coordinator for the last 12 years has been to help design the project. So everything from organic farming. At this point, what we're learning is 25% of their food intake is coming from their own organic gardens. Over 50% of them have solar. All of them do reforestation. All of them do local cleanups where once a month they go out and clean the streets. And it turns out that that's actually been the reason for most of their criticism from the local community is that the community often gets offended that they leave their, you know, brocaded high mats and (laughs) come down and (laughs) kind of use the brooms to clean out the streets. But there are some happy stories because in some cases, apparently the community uh, mobilized and hired a local sweeper. So the monasteries... And nunneries aren't sending the monks and nuns to do that. So it's a whole range of environmental projects, many of which are really successful. And the way they are organized is that we have one monastery in India, in Nepal, and Bhutan that serves as the coordination hub for three years at a time. And they report to that monastery and, you know, His Holiness's Office of Administration often helps with resources if needed. But what's amazing to me and really a sign of community-based success is that the monasteries and nunneries also allocate funding from their own very limited budgets to these activities. And I think that says more than enough in terms of how dedicated they are. Part of Koryuk's focus has been disaster preparedness for the last five years. And so we have monks and nuns that have been trained in what's called CERT, which is Community Emergency Training Response. They can do all kinds of things. They can take their robes and twist it into a stretcher within five minutes, you know. Really? But among other things, what they have to do is design plans for their entire monastery. And that includes having exit plans, you know, having medicine and resources that are stored, knowing how to calm communities down, how to take them into safety, making sure their elders are protected. And so the plan actually is very easily adaptable to any kind of disaster. And what we realized was that that training had equipped them to respond to the pandemic much quicker. And it brings me back to the importance of doing capacity building work, which is often not very, you know, it's not trendy, right? As a service, it's kind of the boring stuff, but it's actually the absolute basis of empowering and uplifting communities. I've gone on to switch a lot of our convenings online. And it's gone surprisingly well. For example, in November, we did a convening of evangelical church leaders on creation care and climate change. And we had 65 church leaders from 25 countries, very well represented from Africa, Asia, and Central America. And so what's fascinating to me is how quickly we as humans adapt. You know, the thing that sets us apart so often from other species is our desire to communicate stories to each other, right? And to, and to try and understand the other person's point of view. And so I feel like many of us have sort of just made that mental shift and adapted. That's not to say right. that it's easy. I think most of us are really struggling as well with isolation, but I I appreciate that we have this human capacity. Yeah, we just went to press with our fourth issue remotely, and it has been quite a learning curve, but it's happening. Yeah. We've managed. I'd like to hear a little bit about how you came to the work that you do. 
I first met you when you were at the World Wildlife Fund as its youngest director. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did at the World Wildlife Fund? So I grew up in very remote part of the Himalayas in Sikkim, and I don't think I even knew I was an environmentalist until I was more or less a teenager. And I always knew that's what I would do by the time I was an undergrad. It felt amazing for me to work for WWF. You know, WWF is the largest conservation group in the world. I was able to go back to the Himalayas, spent months of my life in the field designing community-based conservation projects, which was sort of my core. And then as it happens, I became the director for the Greater Mekong program in Southeast Asia and went on to work with teams on designing solutions for free-flowing rivers, you know, trying to figure out solutions and alternatives for hydropower, and then working on climate change at a regional river basin level. And besides the anxiety that caused, because when you work on an issue like climate change or environmental degradation, mostly you're in the space where you know, you realize that nothing you do is going to make a difference fast enough or big enough, right? So for me, the experience was thinking, oh, community-based is how we're going to fix this problem. And then realizing the scale wasn't big enough. And then working at a river basin level, thinking that's what's going to fix the problem. And then realizing, oh my God, this is not going to work as quickly as we need it to. So I was honestly in a state of what we now know is eco-anxiety, but that term didn't exist then, you know? Right. And, uh, My family dragged me back, as usual, every year to Bodh Gaya, which is, as you know, the site where Buddha was enlightened. And I was on pilgrimage with my family. And I happened to hear His Holiness the Karmapa talk about the environment and talk about vegetarianism and, you know, pull all of these things together. And it was the first time I realized that actually appealing to someone on the basis of their faith could create a mass attitude and behavior change in a way that scientists couldn't do and governments couldn't do. And so I had a meeting with the Solness, the Karmapa, not long after that. And he asked me if I would create environmental guidelines for the Tibetan Buddhist monasteries and nunneries. And I often joke that I said yes, because I thought, oh, my next lifetime is secured. <laughs> you know, This is my right. two-week service to, to my lineage, and I'm going to be in great shape afterwards. And of course, I still am serving him, and I still work with the monasteries and nunneries today. What happened when I first started designing the environmental guidelines was that I began to see how hungry the monks and nuns were for the science. They really wanted answers for why the monsoon patterns had changed, why there was more floods, why the prices of onions had shifted. Like they were really trying to understand what was happening and no one was had explained it to them. So when we first started doing the trainings and these conferences, it was really ad hoc. It was whenever I was in it happened to be in India or Nepal and I had a little bit of time, I would just sort of, you know, we would do a training. But they made the decision that they wanted to organize into association and work together. And that was when something inside me shifted. And I realized that what I thought was my career trajectory, you know, which was very sort of linear and kind of would probably take me towards this a personal ambition where I would end up being a VP and so on, right? That I had to let that go because what I was seeing in front of me was just so powerful. And, you know, it wasn't an instant thing that happened. It was this gradual process of awakening for me, where I also realized that it was the missing piece for a lot of the conservation and climate world. Right. Because from the conservation and climate side, you know, so much of our 
strategy has been based on convincing people that doing the right thing in terms of the environment and climate is in economic terms. You know, that these are the economic gains if you protect the forest, right? We've really pushed ourselves into that route. And we've sort of let go of any other kind of value that might exist for forests and so on. But when you think about biodiversity right now, 80% of the biodiversity today is in indigenous lands protected by indigenous people. And that should tell us quite a lot. That should tell us that it's actually not economics that's driving the protection of biodiversity in this world. It really is the sacred and personal values that people have. And so it was a gradual awakening for me. And I ended up designing a program called Sacred Earth, where I was able to work with faith leaders in different parts of the world and basically prove to conservation that working with faith leaders led to measurable success. It's interesting here because you talked about in an earlier interview with us that Karen Jensen conducted that you struggled to combine your Buddhist faith and your work in the beginning. And here I'm hearing how it's come together. Why was that a problem for you initially or why were you reluctant to think of one in terms of the other? I would say on a personal level, you know, I am a brown woman from the Himalayas. Um, I was sent to the West to study very kindly by my family. And I realized quite quickly, as I think a lot of people of color, and especially women of color do, that there is a transactional cost in terms of becoming successful, you know, whether it's in the education setting or whether it's in the professional setting. And we end up having to adopt a lot of the language and a lot of the, I would say, the paraphernalia of what matters in these two contexts, which is a very Western, Euro-derived, patriarchal idea, which is really, I would say, grounded in rationalism. And when you are a person of faith and when you have spiritual connection to the land, it's really hard to talk about that in a professional education setting. It really is why so many indigenous people, for example, drop out when they come into higher education systems. Can I just ask you to elaborate a little bit on that, why these people would drop out? Because that's really discouraging. So what we see very often, and I would say I see this especially among indigenous students, but I also see this among immigrant students who come with a very strong value system that's based on a religion, which is that when we enter our education system in the West, we are basically told we have a choice. It's either science and rationalism and logic and that heavy emphasis on that, you know, very, um, I would say, reductive reasoning. And then there is the huge leaps and intuition that we have in the faith traditions, you know, which relies very much on you awakening through those leaps of intuition and through those unmeasurable right experiences that we have spiritual experiences that we have and so i think most people i've spoken with do what i did which is suppress the religious and the faith and the spiritual side at work so it almost ends up being and i've described it as this that it's like you're a scientist at day and then a person of faith at night and at some point that schism starts becoming more and more painful and i think it does a great disservice not just to those of us who are more aware of who we are in terms of our identity and, you know, aware that this schism is happening. I actually think it does this to every human being, 
who's gone through this kind of training. Because when you think about why people become environmentalists, typically, ultimately, it almost always boils down to some kind of non-material experience they had where they felt connected to an environmental setting or to a species. And so when we fall back on rationalism and logic and numbers and so on, what we do is we kind of create a space and a distance between us and you know, that object that we love so deeply that inspired us to become an environmentalist. So I think it's not just people of faith or indigenous people that suffer. I think all of us do. Mm -hmm. Because what we are told again and again is that for us to be a good scientist or a good scholar, you actually need that distance from the thing that you're studying. And so it explains why we so often think we are separate from nature. We've created this distance to study the thing we love the most and the thing that actually gives us our resilience. You know, we create this distance and by doing that, we actually introduce a kind of a maladaptation in our relationship with the earth. That's so nicely said. I, I just wonder if this tension between your faith and your work as a scientist has persisted or softened over time and how you have found ways to live in this both-and tension. Mm -hmm. When I created Sacred Earth at WWF, what I learned was that there were so many people of faith at WWF. That was my first experience, was that the, you know, the door would constantly open with someone coming to say to me that their faith was part of what had driven them to become an environmentalist. And so the first thing I think we have to identify and recognize is that you know, when we think about our identity, we are multi-complex. We are not simplistic, although we love to describe ourselves that way, right? We are intersectional from the very beginning in the formation of our identity. And so I don't think there has to be this dualism and this tension. For me, I think working with faith leaders meant that I could drop the false tension that had been introduced into my life. But as I'd said earlier, you know, I was a Buddhist and an environmentalist exactly at the same time for the same reason. I could see the display of interdependence in nature and everything I studied, especially in the biological sciences, we simply confirmed the understanding of interdependence to me. Let's talk about Buddhism for a second. After all, you're a Buddhist, we're a Buddhist magazine. In this country, many of the early environmentalists were Buddhists. We had Gary Snyder, Joanna Macy, Michael Soule, David Loy, and others. You just mentioned interdependence. Do you think there's a natural affinity there, specific to Buddhism, or do you feel that uh, faith traditions in general have an affinity for this? Is there a natural affinity between Buddhism and environmentalism? I think any religion that is based to a certain extent on the observation of reality or the examination of reality is, yes. Take any aspect of the biological world. Let's talk about rain, for example, and the water cycle. Transpiration and evaporation, it goes up into the air and then it comes back down as rain and it feeds the oceans and that this happens again and again, just giving life to the planet. How can that be anything but a display of compassion, right? When I talk about biology, I don't even mean just the environmental aspects. Look at our human body. Look at how mm -hmm. cells regenerate every seven years. How can that be anything but a display of emptiness right there, you know, an impermanence? And so what I have found working with Buddhists, but also working with other religions, is that it really comes down to interpretation. 
And it comes down to ultimately an understanding that religion and science want the same things. Both traditions are looking for answers, but they are not necessarily looking for answers in the same place, you know? Right. But I also think of the tension between faith and science sometimes, and you've resolved it so nicely in your own work, but you also deal with, say, evangelical Christians, many of whom uh, claim that that climate change is not caused by human beings. How do you include them under this umbrella? And they don't have to be evangelical Christians, any uh, member of a faith group that seems reluctant to acknowledge that we're causing climate change. I'm not sure I blame the religion for any disagreement with science, because I can tell you there are plenty of Buddhists who think what I'm doing is sacrilege, because if we are true meditationers who meditate on emptiness and samsara is, you know, understanding samsara is emptiness, why would we get off the mat and do something, right? So, (laughs) I'm everybody. Well, actually, you're anticipating my next question is going to be, if we're thinking of karma, rebirth, trans-historical realities in the Buddhist cosmology, some would say, well, yes, everything's impermanent, and they wouldn't feel the sense of urgency that you do. uh, So I really don't think it's the religion. I think it's the person. And, you know, working with evangelicals, one one thing I can say, let me just say one thing. No faith leader has ever turned down a request when I've asked to meet with them. They've always heard me out. If there is resistance, it's quite often from the science side. So that's one of the things I want to say. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, I think one thing that has always come up when I've spoken to evangelical leaders is that you lead with what you have in common. And what we have in common is a natural concern for disasters. What we find in the U.S., for example, is one of the most generous groups of people that donate for post-disaster relief are the evangelical churches. And so Mm -hmm. you might have leaders in the evangelical churches that say they don't think climate change is real or they don't think that climate is caused by humans, and yet they are providing safe space and succor and support for all these people who are harmed by climate change, right? Who are harmed by climate disasters. And so for me, a lot of what I see as my particular way in is to build a bridge on what we have in common. And it starts with, in that case, disaster work. Mm-hmm. There are areas where we may not agree. You know, I'm a very outspoken feminist and eco-feminist, and most religions are grappling with the issue of women leadership, right, including mine, <laughs> to, to say, say the, the least. least. <laughs> and so I'm very outspoken <laughs> about that. However, when I'm there to build a program and to design programs in service of faith leaders, I can put that aside. And, and we often come to those topics, but I know that's not why I'm there. I guess non-attachment to view probably helps you out from time to time. Yes. <laughs> and I think <laughs> having sort of a very narrow focus when it comes to that actual moment and the job I have to build capacity for an issue. But that's not to say those discussions don't arise and I don't push back. But I'm very aware of the privilege of even having space in that room and being allowed to do what I do, which is introduce science-based solutions, you know, to a group of faith leaders who are really driven because they are concerned about what's happening to their communities. They're concerned about what's happening to nature. Right. So, Dakila, let's take a break, hear from our sponsor, St. John's College, and we'll be right back. St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico, 
is for undergraduate and graduate students who seek meaning in their lives, who ask hard questions of themselves and their world, and who dare to free their minds. The Graduate Institute is home for students seeking a lifelong commitment to thoughtful, collaborative inquiry into fundamental human questions. Students pursuing the Master of Arts in Eastern Classics examine the core literary, philosophical, and theological works of India, China, and Japan. In small, discussion-based classes, students delve both deep and wide into the richness of Asian traditions and study one of two ancient languages, classical Chinese or Sanskrit. The three-semester Eastern Classics program offers the flexibility of both online and on-campus options. Come join this vibrant community of learners from all walks of life. Learn more about the St. John's Master of Arts in Eastern Classics, including online options, at sjc.edu slash tricycle. That's sjc.edu slash tricycle. Okay, we're back with Akila Chungyampa, Tibetan Buddhist and environmentalist. So tell me a little bit more about your role at the LOKA Initiative. What ultimately does the organization hope to accomplish? The LOKA Initiative is an education and outreach platform at the University of Wisconsin-Madison that builds a bridge between religion and science. And what we do is support the needs of faith leaders and culture keepers of indigenous traditions on environmental and climate issues, which means that we are very adaptive. We are not the ones who tell them what they should do. They ask for resources in terms of what they need, and we do our best to connect and provide those. From the very beginning, the way Richie and I designed LOCA was so that it's an interdisciplinary collaboration among different programs at the university. In the gender studies program, we are able to draw from environmental science, from climate health, from adult education, and then, of course, from the Center for Healthy Minds, which is very focused on psychology and neuroscience. And I think that flexibility means that we are able to examine what we have in common with religions using all kinds of different methods, right? And we are able to explore both the known and unknown in that way. And it brings us together in ways, when I say us, I mean science and religion, it brings us together in ways where we are able to ask religions to facilitate an emotional and spiritual journey which leads to protecting the planet. Because we need the planet, no matter who we are, no matter where we stand, we desperately need the planet to be healthy so we can be healthy. I often say that the vision for LOCA is that inner community and planetary resilience are all interconnected, and you cannot have any one of these without the other two. I was thinking about the evangelicals and other faith groups as first responders, and how is it that they really mitigate the harm they may do? in spreading misinformation about climate change, or if they're not getting at the root cause, if they're not buying into the root cause of it, how does that work? I mean, a faith group may respond to, say, a flood, and they always do. Mm -hmm. 
So having been in the environmental and climate world since I was a teenager, I found that there is often this tendency to create what I think of as false choices, you know, to create these choices where people are asked to either say, it's the individual action that matters, right? Or it's basically changing the behavior of the 100 corporations that we know produce 75% of, of carbon emissions. And so there are these choices that are presented to us as environmentalists, you know, and, and there's a real tendency to once again, to basically create a pyramid of choices to say, these are the best ones. And if you're not doing this, you are not a it's a purist campaign. You know, if you are not doing mm -hmm. these, then you're not really walking the walk. You're just talking the talk. And therefore, you're not legitimate as a leader. I have a very different approach because what I see and what I try to do again and again is put myself in the shoes of the faith communities that I work with. Let's say you happen to be a woman of color. You could be an immigrant. You could be a single mother. You are really concerned about, you know, lead. <laughs> how your children are growing, what's happening around your children. You're really concerned about pesticides in the water, PFAS in the water, and you have a very limited amount of time. Is it really empowering? Are you really benefiting the environmental cause by telling that woman that, you know, her choice to focus on PFAS is not the priority, right? right? Because there is a much bigger issue at stake. And so we might not like to think this, but this is actually the choice we give almost everyone, which is we give them an overabundance of choices in terms of being part of the environmental and climate solution, and we tell them what they do isn't good enough and isn't sufficient enough. And my approach has been the opposite, which is to say, we need everyone to be acting on everything. So you pick. And this is exactly how I work with faith leaders. I don't come in there to tell them what their problem is, what they need to do. I ask them to talk to their community and then tell us, what are the issues you're really worried about? So for example, almost always in the monasteries in the Himalayas or in the churches and the mosques in East Africa, the issues that come up are water and climate change, almost always, invariably. You go to different parts of Asia, the issues that come up is garbage and waste management. And so I think it's really important for us in the science world to have that kind of understanding of why people make the choices they do. It isn't because they don't care. It isn't because they are uneducated. <laughs> it isn't because they are stupid. It really is that they have a limited amount of time and capacity and resources. And so our job is to tell them, actually, is to help them figure out what's the best thing they could do with that limited time, capacity, and resources. In your interview with us, you said, and I'll quote you, <laughs> if that's okay, there's a tendency from the science side to look at evangelicals and say, they're all climate deniers. But I think this attitude comes from a place of deep attachment to our own identity and an unwillingness to imagine that the people we don't agree with are motivated by the same things that we are, the desire to be happy and healthy. Can you say something about that? <laughs> sure. This comes very much from my own experience. So I worked for a large conservation group I went on to work in a large Ivy League and then have continued to be in a large public university. And in all of these settings, I have had close friends and colleagues who have really questioned my work with Christians in the United States. I mean, really rigorously questioned and critiqued it. 
and I have to say also quite often expressed being deeply moved when they've seen the work I've done with Himalayan and Tibetan Buddhist monks and nuns or with the World Youth Day organizers and the Catholic Church when the Pope first came to Brazil as the Pope, you know, the first time when he returned. Everybody loved it. They were so moved by it. They went through great lengths to tell me how important that work was. And what's fascinating to me is that that work is acceptable. And I think it really reveals a kind of, I don't know if I have the right word, but almost an exotification (laughs) of the far away. It makes so much sense to them that we would work with faith leaders in the Himalayas because it's evocative. You can think of the fluttering prayer flags. And of course, everyone thinks of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who I think, honestly, everybody just sort of places as a beloved grandfather in their own lives, right? That's how they visualize him. And so all of that is acceptable. And what I learned again and again is that for someone like me who is multicultural, who has one foot in the U.S. and one foot in the Himalayas, that I can look at the work I do elsewhere. And then it makes complete sense to me. It's actually rational and logical that I would use the same method in the United States. If it works elsewhere, why would it not work in the United States? And so to come up against this resistance to me is very revealing because what it says is that we in the science world in the United States have a real inherent bias when it comes to the dominant religion in the United States. Right. You know, this real anxiety around the role of Christianity. And if we are to be truly unbiased, truly logical, truly rational, we have to say that if we can work with these religions in other places and it works, we should be able to work with religions here and it would work. And I think that's where the disconnect happens. That's interesting. I mean, I was impressed with your work years ago. I'm even more impressed now, I have to say. I think that's very helpful. And it really moves toward a kind of unity as opposed to the division that we're so afflicted with. You talked a little bit about how Buddhism inspired you. And I'm wondering what Buddhist teachings or sutras or stories stand out in terms of addressing environmental concerns for you? Which ones informed your outlook or what they can teach us? Oh, I don't even know where to begin. Um, The two prayers that mean the most to me are the Doma, the Green Tara prayer, Mm -hmm. and then the Sherab Ningpo, Mm -hmm. right? Which is very much the Pragyaparamita, the emptiness prayer. So these are the two prayers that I was raised practicing that form the basis of my practice. And it's interesting because the Shabnipo prayer is very much about, basically, it's like true practice. You're cutting off all your attachment, you know, to all your different, your sight and your hearing and your body and, you know, creating this sort of emptiness. But what I feel in the practice of Shabnipo, and I'm really terrified my master will hear me (laughs) say this and then call me out on it. But what I feel very much is that The way often emptiness is interpreted in the West is very nihilistic, right? It's the emptiness of everything. It's the emptiness of self, and there is nothing. But actually, if you are a practitioner, and this is the practice you do, what you experience is that it's the dissolving of the self, and it's actually the everything of the everything else. Does that make sense? Yeah, that that makes sense. Right? Yeah, definitely. And so it's the dissolving of the self into everything else. And then how can you not be an environmentalist when you are experiencing that? Because even the oxygen is coming from elsewhere. It's coming from the trees and it's coming from biomass. It's coming from algae, you know? 
Right. The clothes we're wearing at that very moment when we are sitting and our thighs are pressed to the ground, the earth is holding us up. It's again the manifestation of dependent rising on nature, which is holding each one of us up. And so for me, doing that practice, you know, it was a practice my mother gave to me as a child and that I was encouraged to do very much. I think that experience made it so obvious to me that I had to do the work to protect nature, that there wasn't right. a choice. And why green Tara? Oh, that's all for courage. Because let me tell you, it can be scary to be <laughs> a brown girl from the middle of nowhere in the Himalayas and be telling all kinds of people what to do. So the green Tara is very much for, I would say, a reminder of why I do what I do. You know, a sort of a reminder of who I'm accountable to ultimately and why I think I'm here as this entity for this lifetime. You mentioned your mother, and I wanted to ask about that. Your mother was pretty unconventional. Yes. <laughs> as she's a nun who chose not to live in the monastery. Your grandmother was also a nun. And so you have good examples set for you. So you say courage, but I wonder how much of that courage really comes from your grandmother and your mother, because <laughs> they're pretty interesting people. Yes. So... In Sikkim, as elsewhere in the Tibetan Plateau and the Himalayas, women who are alone often have that choice to take vows. My grandmother, when she became a widow, took her vows and became a nun. My mother, when she divorced, basically after a year or two, said this is what she wanted to do. And my mother was very unconventional from the very beginning. She had her master's in English literature. She was the principal of a very well-known school, very outspoken, quite a feminist. And so for her to take these vows and decide to enter a solitary three-year retreat in Sherbling with Taisita Rinpoche, it was unheard of. And she was the first Sikkimese nun to actually complete a three-year retreat. She took the name Tsunma Dichenzangmo, and she studied with a lot of very well-known Kagyu and Nyingma teachers. And so she was basically my first example of how you could do all of these things at once. You know, you could be a feminist, you could be an activist, you could work in the professional world, and then you could also be a spiritual person, a practitioner. And she went on to, of course, be a teacher and a translator and so on. I have this deep gratitude for both of them because they taught me very early on that I had choices. And one of my mother's favorite sayings was, there is no path. There is only where the foot falls next. And so the lesson I received again and again was always that I didn't have to follow a prescribed path. I didn't have to do exactly what I was told was the right thing to do. I could design it. And I think that's really um, influenced me on so many levels in my personal life, in my professional life, and so on. One of my favorite memories of her was that she had this enormous medical book <laughs> that she used for any health crisis in our large extended family. And I remember her teaching me how a zygote becomes an embryo, which becomes a fetus, which transforms into a child, all within a woman's body. She was showing me all of these images and explaining to me how humans are born and how we exist. But what she started teaching me and asking me were things like, so where is the consciousness in this lifetime? Where is the self? When is the cell? You know, if the umbilical cord is still connected, what is the cell? Now, keep in mind, I was 10 years at the time. <laughs> it's a little bit different from my education. <laughs> right? So the way she challenged me and the way she asked me to debate with her meant that 
I think in a way, I I didn't have a choice. I had to also pick a very untraditional life. I, I wonder, did you ever yourself consider the monastic path to follow in the footsteps of your grandmother and mother? Yes, I did. All the women in my family are very serious practitioners. You know, my mother passed away in 1997. Her sisters are all very serious practitioners. I once requested His Holiness the Karmapa, and he said, oh, you are not this lucky in this lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll leave it at that. Uh, I am married. A few years later, I actually met my husband and then eventually ended up getting married. So so I think he knew something I didn't know. Right. So what is your Buddhist practice now? What shape has that taken? I mostly have a daily practice. It Mm -hmm. can change a little bit depending on the circumstances. I tend to do a lot of dolka and doma practice, and I think I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Okay. Well, how do you integrate your environmental consciousness into your everyday practice, or do you? I do. And I also have lately been designing meditations for my community of environmental and climate people, especially those who are suffering from eco-anxiety and climate distress, because I've been there. I know exactly how that feels. I would say about maybe now seven years ago, I actually had a conversation with His Holiness, the Karmapa, and at that time I was expressing to him what that felt like, and he told me, you need to practice Tonglen for it, and then ended up kindly instructing me on it. And we ended up creating something that could be amended and modified for environmental issues. Mm -hmm. And so I use that practice quite often when I feel discouraged or, or anxious about what's happening with climate change. You know, you think about the forest fires last year in California and, and this incredible, rapidly intensifying tropical storms that we're seeing in the Atlantic and elsewhere, right? I mean, it's, it's happening all around us. My husband and I made the choice to leave the Bay Area and move to Madison because I couldn't work on climate disasters, not bring that home. And so we moved here, but I'm so aware of how rare that is, you know, that if you are in the vulnerable category anywhere, you know, if you're a woman, if you are a person of color, if you're poor, if you are disabled, if you're an immigrant, the reality is that you are locked where you are because it's not just economic resources that you need. You rely on a whole network of caregivers, you know, that depend on you and that you depend on, right, to survive because you're already so vulnerable. And so that choice of being able to move away from an area where there is climate disaster is, is, is actually, you know, reserved for very few people, people of privilege, including me. And so in the process of us moving, I was really just crippled with guilt that I could do that and aware of my privilege. And so a lot of the practice I've done lately around Tonglen has been to accept that and to find ways to to counter that and work through it. Tonglen is the practice of giving and receiving. Yeah. Do you want to say something very briefly about that? Sure. So Tonglen is a Tibetan Buddhist practice that's basically where you visualize what it is that you want to either cultivate compassion for or what you want to cultivate healing for. And you place that object mentally in front of you and you take on that object suffering and you give your own compassion or your own healing. It's a very good practice that often my teachers have used for people who come saying they're really struggling with hatred, you know, or they're really suffering out of fear or they're really scared about something. And so 
it's not an easy practice. There are people who've described feeling even worse, right, when they first start doing it. So when I lead Donglen and the Center for Healthy Minds, where my program is based, has an app called Healthy Minds, which is free. Anyone can take it. And so I have a few meditations up there on this. I often say, please do grounding meditation first, because you have to be stabilized yourself for some time Mm -hmm. before you can do this practice. But it really seems to help with eco-anxiety in particular and being able to cultivate compassion and caring for the earth and return with gratitude to what the earth gives us. I wonder how much that eco-anxiety can be fed by the way we frame our relationship to this problem. Like a lot of people refer to the war on climate change. And I understand that you don't think that martial language is a very helpful thing, thinking of it in terms of a war. Can you say something about that? Of course. So I'm really struck by who uses war language. Conservation and climate are very dominated by white men (laughs) and powerful white men. And so they tend to use a language which is very conquistador, you know, (laughs) it really is like, and what I find is that when we use language like that, we obviously are going to then think of winners and losers. We're going to create a zero sum game in our mind. And we then fall into this trap once again about, oh, you know, the argument being about the limited resources. And so once again, we're actually feeding into this larger paradigm, which neoliberalism is based on, you know, which is we accumulate resources on one end. It's very easy when you have that kind of framework to create enemies in your mind. And it's very easy to sort of lean into your prejudices and then think of people over there, let's say people with large populations as the problem, you know, poor, uneducated people as the problem. Instead of creating a framework where we are actually all part of the problem and we are all part of the solution. What we're doing is really introducing this dualism and once again, a false choice between who matters and who doesn't in this work. And so I really try and avoid it and I call it out when I see it quite often. (laughs) Dakila, I could talk to you all day. We're running short on time, but I did want to ask another question. I talked to Joanna Macy and I asked her, do you have hope? And she said, Buddhists don't do hope. I'm in love with what is. And I really (laughs) loved that. Uh, I'm wondering, how do you deal with attachment to outcome? You mentioned the magnitude of the challenges we face and that we've taken on. And even using the war language, we have an attachment to the outcome. We've got to win. And it's easy to despair, but how do we let go of that attachment to outcome and continue doing the work? Oh, that's such a beautiful, difficult question. Okay, let me put it this way. I don't always manage to do this well. I have days where I despair, where I lose hope or lose courage. I think maybe a lot of it is reminding myself again and again that it's not the product, it's the process. And I think this is wisdom that really comes from community organizers who are women on the ground, that my experience has been that in the sisterhood that I feel very lucky to have, the conversation is so often what we are doing in the here and now, as opposed to what we can gain in the future, which is, I think, why so often women community leaders are so easily shunted aside when it comes to giving recognition to who did the actual work because they're so invested in the work and not necessarily in the outcome. What that means is that I have a reminder from this community again and again that part of practicing and acknowledging impermanence is realizing you can only count on the here and now. 
And what you do with the here and now is the most important thing. And so I think it makes it more bearable. I mean, you know, I've been working in the conservation world and the climate world since 2000. There have been lots of ups and downs <laughs> in what we've seen globally, including in the places that I have a very sacred relationship to. A lot of downs, of course. However, ultimately, I think if as a practitioner, what I can say is that I can't control the outcome, right? I can't control the product. I can control the process. And so that, I think, is what fills up most of my day, and that sustains me in the process. In the process of the process, I am sustained. <laughs> you know, I, I have to wonder, do you ever find time to sleep? You have so many projects in the year. <laughs> <laughs> there have been times when, you know, I have to be awake at 1 a.m. or 3 a.m. to work with the monasteries, and then I have an right. 8 a.m. meeting. <laughs> it's been a little painful. Oh <laughs> there have been times <laughs> when I've thought, what am I doing? <laughs> yes. I guess it's called dedication, you know. Yeah. I think almost everyone I know in the environmental and climate world has this kind of sense of, you know, needing to do as much as they can in the time they have. I don't want to put it in the language of doom and gloom to the extent that we see in the media, but we do have a window of opportunity. I especially see it right now in the U.S. in terms of the Paris Agreement or in terms of uh, climate policy. So using a nature-based theme, make hay when the sun shines, I guess. <laughs> right. That makes sense. Dekila Chunyapa, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been so lovely reconnecting, James. <laughs> thank yes. you so much. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Dekila Chunyapa, a conservation scientist and director of the LOCA Initiative, here on Tricycle Talks. A quick reminder, March is Meditation Month at Tricycle. Visit us at tricycle.org where you'll find free resources to support your practice. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.